Okay, so if you have been listening to Back to Reality on this channel, on uh, my SoundCloud or on iTunes or wherever, for any amount of time, you've probably heard Justin Simeon on this show. And I've, I've said this openly before, uh, some of my very favorite episodes in the history of this show have been with Justin coming on talking about hot topics and things like that. Um, I believe there are three episodes, if you search our, our sound, SoundCloud page, um, for the, pa the past episodes, and I will say this one does not disappoint. <laughs> I'm talking to Justin Simeon about season two of Dear White People. If you haven't seen it, first of all, I want to let you know it's full of spoilers. We're talking about every episode in the series because every episode in this season um, of the series because we wanted to really unpack. Um, everything in these 10 episodes and just really be able to talk about what was happening, how they came at um, at the story, how they shot it, how they did everything. So this is about an hour and a half of Justin and I chatting about the season. And I think it is fantastic. If you are a big fan of the show, um, you are going to definitely get some things out of this that you may not have caught or that will validate some of the things that you were thinking or debunk some of the ideas that you have about what's going on in the show. Um, we talk a little bit overall about the show first, and then we get into the episodes. If you look into the episode description, you'll see where you can jump ahead, um, but also where each episode kind of jumps into the conversation. So we wanted to make sure that, you know, again, spoiler, spoiler, spoilers. We're giving away all the, the inside stuff of what's happening throughout this season. Um, but if you've already watched the show or if you're currently watching the show, I wanted this to be something that you could... Uh, watch or read, uh, listen to, I should say, or read along with the series to be able to really like go in depth on the episodes. So uh, this is my conversation with Justin Simeon. At the end of it, we talk about what is coming up next for him because, you know, most people know him because of Dear White People, the film and the series, but he's doing something that is completely unrelated to Dear White People. And we'll get into that as well. So so here it is. Check out my episode with Justin Simeon talking about Dear White People. The link to the article that this is for with Essence is going to be in the episode notes when that article comes out. And uh, enjoy. Justin, how's it going? It's going well, man. It's talk, going really good. It's been a good, good couple weeks. Talk to me about the feedback you've been getting on uh, DWP so far. It's been amazing, man. I mean, I feel like the trolls are really busy right now, like, you know, <laughs> with all the stuff President Trump is doing. And so mostly it's like, it's just been a lot of love. And, um, you know, the one thing that we went into with season two is like, we really can't rest on the reviews of season one. We can't rest on the laurels. We really have to outdo ourselves and go deeper and go further and really respond to, you know, an urgent time. And um, to see people picking up on that is really exciting. And, and also just to see people like really kind of digging into, you know, the thing with Netflix is that everything goes up at once. And for us, each episode is sort of like its own sort of meal that, you know, we want people to unpack. And to see people doing that with the things that resonated with them is just, it's just cool, man. It's like why we, it's like why we do what we do, you know? So that's actually, you kind of touched on one of the things that I've been thinking about with this. Cause like I binged half of the season when they, when it was like impressed. And then I watched half of it all together, the second half of it together after it came out. And I thought to myself, 
there's got to be pluses and minuses as a writer and director to all of the episodes coming out at once um, as opposed to them coming out weekly. So I'm sure there are some great parts about that and there are some annoying parts about that. Can you talk about what those things might be? Well, you know, with it's sort of a show that appeals to Black Twitter, and Black Twitter loves to watch a show together. And um, you know, the thing that you don't really get is that weekly sort of regular, you know, trending topic style conversation where you know, as kind of a group, people get to unpack one episode at a time. You don't get that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you do get is one, especially when I made the series when I first started. It really appealed to me to not have to do a pilot. You know, typically a TV pilot is you have to sort of like do the entire show, but in one episode, but then that's not how the rest of your show is going to be. And I like the idea of being able to sort of make it all together like a movie, you know, that, that, that is the other thing is that people do tend to watch dear white people at once. And, um, you know, that's kind of cool that you, that, People get to have that experience. Um, And also, I mean, one of the most exciting things about Netflix is that it is um, it's it's a global uh, platform. So, you know, my show beams out to almost 200 countries and especially for something that I think the myth is that, you know, anything about black people is specifically American. You know, we get to like literally bust that myth up. Uh, with our show because we see people from all over the world uh, responding to this material that, you know, we're always told is so American uh, and doesn't travel. So, you know, that's, that's, a, that's an exciting aspect of it for sure. What, what kind of response are you getting from other countries? That, that must be interesting. Yeah. I mean, some of it I can't read because I don't. Know. <laughs> <laughs> point taken, point taken. Uh, say i will say brazilians are really really into the show um i think because there's not very much uh you know local television that really gets into race relations and brazil is a very culturally racially diverse place um it's also interesting to hear people from places like stockholm or even france where you would think you know these issues wouldn't necessarily translate but um, you know, blackface is actually kind of a global export and everyone gets it. And, and, and the idea that you are seen as one thing, but you're actually another, I mean, that's the experience of people of color all over the world. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it is, uh, it's really gratifying, but it's also great because as an artist, I'm not just talking about what I'm going through. I'm talking about the human condition just through my lens. And as a filmmaker, I've grown up loving films that have nothing to do with anyone that looks like me and you know watching foreign films and watching american films frankly with just white people everywhere it's sort of I'm, I'm used to it and i think i think people should get used to it the other way around too so uh that's pretty gratifying to see that's what's up i love i can't read a lot of it um that's <laughs> hilarious. A different language. Uh, right no yeah that's okay so Um, I wanted to kind of go in on each episode and like talk about them individually because I feel like everyone is in different places of watching the show, but everyone takes things away differently. And before I get into the first episode, um, there's all kinds of analysis on like Justin saying this and this means that and blah, blah, blah. The thing that's most interesting to me is what if people gotten wrong in their analysis about the messages that you are, are, are telling in this season? 
You know, I haven't really thought so much about that. Um, you know, I kind of grew up on the idea that art is both objective and subjective in the sense that, like, as an artist, you're trying to speak to the human condition and be as honest as you possibly can. But at a certain point, you turn that art over to the audience and they get to make what they will of it. You know, that's sort of how it works. So I, I really don't spend a lot of time thinking about what people got wrong. I mean, I will say there's a lot of there's a lot of intent. You know, we've we've sort of. In this episode, we've created a bit of a mystery about the history of Winchester. There's a lot of secret society stuff. And so I will say a lot of people's theories about what all of that means and how it's going to turn out are interesting. Not necessarily what we had in mind, but I, 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 you know, I wouldn't even want to call that out because I think that ruins the fun of it. You know what sure, I mean? sure. Um, I think the one thing that we dealt with with the film um, that isn't so much of an issue anymore with the show is that I think people were expecting, you know, some people were expecting dear white people, white people to be that sort of, you know, dear white, like just undressing white people and blaming them. And, you know, and it was never really that, you know, dear white people. It really is about the experience of being a person of color who always has to feel in response to whiteness. It's not actually a letter to white people. So I think like (laughs) there was was like a moment, there was a moment when black audiences and white audiences had to sort of like shift. I think when the movie came out, but now um, I have to say people are pretty much picking up what we're putting down. I have to say it's, it's mostly been, it's mostly been spot on. I think that, uh, I think that with any television show where you create characters that are complicated and are flawed, you have people that like and dislike them in ways that don't necessarily line up with us, the writers or the cast, but that's the fun of it. You know what I mean? You want people to get caught up in these stories and you want people to have opinions about these characters as if they were real people. I mean, if you just liked everybody universally, that would be kind of a boring show. I think. Well, there's that. That's true. That's true. Um, (laughs) and then, uh, lastly, before we jump into the episodes, um, well, I want to talk about some of the creative, and I guess we'll, we'll kind of get into that uh, throughout the episodes as well. But, like, you have a really interesting shooting style on this show um, and playing with, like, uh, like the horizon line. You, like, shoot things kind of on an angle at points. And, like, I'm watch- I have episode one up on the screen right now, and, like, there's a moment where she's – where Sam is sitting on her bed talking, and, like, the camera starts to kind of tilt a little bit. And that's something that you play with throughout the, ep- throughout the season – and I was curious if there was like what what that is like. Talk to us about your style of of directing and what you like to to put on camera. Yeah, I mean, you know, I really like to come up with a film language that's particular to whatever story I'm telling or whatever story world I'm telling. And the film, you know, I, I, there was a lot of influences uh, from Fritz Lang to De Palma to Hitchcock, etc. And you know, I think the film in a lot of ways is is a love letter to cinema and to storytelling and to sort of putting black faces in um, camera angles and camera aesthetics that, you know, frankly, throughout film history have sort of only been reserved for white characters. Um, And so because I love cinema, that's just something that I think the film is embodied with and I really wanted to um, take that up a notch with the series. I feel like the season one is very, very cinematic, but it, you know, it really wasn't until season two that I made an attempt to really formalize the language of the film. And, and really what it comes down to is really using the tools of cinema to get inside the heads of the characters. Um, it, you know, it, it's not so much a very, it's not really like a paint by number style. 
it's just sort of a refusal to do the typical visual storytelling style of, of, of shooting TV where you kind of, you know, you move into a scene and you get a wide shot and you get some close-ups and you sort of find the rhythm in the editing. Um, I really, you know, I really pushed all of the directors and certainly pushed myself to tell the story as cinematically as possible. And particularly in episode one, uh, when we're in, you know, when we're dealing with Sam, there's certainly a, a, a line story, if you will, going on with her uh, about when it is that she feels kind of safe and stable, when she feels kind of trapped, when she feels claustrophobic by, the, you know, the opinions of other people. Um, you know, every, every, every way that I shoot that particular episode is about kind of communicating what her state of mind is and how it's shifting and when she feels off axis and when she feels stable and when she feels as if she has to kind of fight for her own identity. Um, you know, Sam is one of those people who has a beautiful identity that is changing the campus, but yet and still it doesn't reflect everything that she is. So, you know, that kind of tension between the role that she plays and who she really is, is something that I really, really wanted to, you know, just imbue the, 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 the film language with, you know what I mean? Like, this is what I get up and do every morning. Like, I'm not, I, I want to push myself to do interesting work. Like, it just would be so boring to me to just shoot it. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, <laughs> so, long story short, you know, I, I just love cinema and I wanted to make cinematic choices um, that, that made the story feel special and specific to the characters. So you've kind of, you kind of pulled this into episode one and like, uh, you direct, you directed episode one. Um, I was curious about how you made the decision on what episodes you would direct as opposed to, um, to not directing. Well, you know, I wanted to direct more this season than I did last season. I did three episodes last season and I wanted to do, more i got it up to four <laughs> okay but the thing is, is that i'm both you know i'm both i'm running the show with yvette lee bowser but i'm also you know i write on every episode i in a sense direct the directors and um it's just a lot it's a lot to do and it would be impossible to both run the show with yvette and also direct uh, you know the bulk of the episodes um so part of it is scheduling Part of it is just what my what I'm what stories I'm attracted to. Um, you know, some of it's a negotiation with the studio who wants to make sure that I'm available and on set, and you know, can sort of be a part of the process, which is not necessarily the case when I'm directing. You know, when I'm directing an episode, I can't really be in post production on a different episode. I can't be as engaged in the rewriting process. So it really is just the balance of time and and the way we figured it out this time is sort of you know I wanted to direct the first episode but then really for the first half of the season I was just concentrating on making sure that the season and the scripts and and you know all of the work of running the show was done so that I, I start to direct a little bit more towards the end of the season because we've sort of finished you know more scripts and we've we've hired people and we've gone through casting um, and so I had just a little bit more time on my plate to direct more so that's part of it and the other side of it is that you know um there were certain episodes i was just really attracted to like uh, episode eight uh it's a play basically it's a it's a bottle episode yeah and, you know as a filmmaker i love sydney lamette and i love mike nichols and i love these directors that can make cinema out of two people in a room and i wanted to do that um episode six is basically it's a film noir i mean i shot it like you know 
Orson Welles would shoot, you know, Third Man or, or um, Citizen Kane. You know, so part of it is just me as a filmmaker. Like, I, like, enjoy it. And I wanted to... I wanted to play in different genres, and I wanted to, um, again, what's a new way to tell these stories? What's a new way to present these faces to people? Um, that's the kind of thing that, like, just gets me excited. So it was a combination, man. It was a combination. Okay, so episode one, we are we kind of begin back right where we left off at the end of season two. Um, it seems like like maybe a little bit of time has passed, but, like, we're, we're jumping right back in, and uh, Sam is kind of... Uh, encountering a lot of online hate with all Ivy on Twitter and trying to to deal with that. Like, talk to me about writing episode one. Well, you know, I, I dealt with a lot of alt-right BS in the first season, and I was just so kind of, at first taken aback, but then really fascinated by the way in which outrage has been weaponized um, in the years since the movie and the series. And, you know, what started off as genuine ignorance and, like, what if there was a irreplicable in that crap? became like people who were intentionally um, lying, frankly, to their base about what the show was so that these people would then go out and so-called, you know, protest and boycott and leave messages and uh, write awful things in our comment sections and, you know, try to lower our ratings and stuff. Like, it, it became weaponized, and I realized that, like, my show had become kind of like a pawn in this almost arms race of like people. It's like, you know, the alt-right was really trying to get its base together. And, you know, they used my show as kind of a, a building block for that. And, and I was really fascinated by that. And I had to talk about it in the context of the show, because I mean, that's what Sam would be going through. And that's what honestly, any black person who dares to speak the truth about being black in a white dominated society, that's what you go through, man. Like all the, all of American history comes up against you. If you dare <laughs> sit in the front of a bus, I mean, that's just the way it's always been. Yeah. So, um, you know, to me, it was, to me, there's no better sort of inspiration for this show than what's happening in our lives, uh, as writers. Um, and so, you know, to me, it was a no-brainer. And, it, and what, what came out was really like this bizarro version of episode one, where we sort of hit the same beats. We meet Sam in the radio station, then we see her in Armstrong Parker, and then we see her sex life, and then we see her school life. Like, we hit the same beats as the pilot episode, but everything was flipped on its axis. And I think that's how a lot of us felt in the age of Trump, that like, oh boy, like, it's the same issues we've always had, but somehow we're just, we've woken up in a completely strange land, you know, that we almost didn't see coming. I wanted to sort of give that experience to Sam. So, and I, you just kind of touched on the, the what if there was a Dear Black People thing, and you know well, I write with uh, with various outlets, and one of them is NBCBOK, which we did a show with you last year, and every time we have something on NBCBOK, the, the response is like, well, what if there was a NBC White, and it's like, Y'all, I don't even. I can't. Are you serious? Like, and uh, yeah, and on um, this, it's a pretty, it's a pretty pervasive. I mean, I actually like this thing went viral on Twitter the other day because somebody left a review at a restaurant in New York, and they were like, "The food's amazing, the service was perfect, and the prices were great." But I overheard two waitresses talking about some show called Dear White People. And even though I don't know what the show's about, I can only assume that it's about how white people are to blame for everything. And therefore, this person gave the restaurant three stars. What? And then when, people, and then when the management wrote back and was like, um, 
we're sorry that you didn't enjoy the conversation you overheard, but we're not quite sure what to do about that. And quite frankly, we're a little offended. He downrated it to one star. So it's like there's this victim culture that it's so, I mean, it's so, it's such a mind screw because it's like black people are often being blamed for being in a victim mindset and having this victim culture. But yet people who are truly not victimized by anything in particular sort of are playing the victim, and it's it's bizarre. It's just bizarre. But you know what, man? It comes down, and this is why the show is, this season is so obsessed with history. It comes down to education. If people don't understand how racism works, you know, it's easy for them to get offended because you're like, oh, why do they get a black thing? Well, it's because you don't realize that everything else is dominated by white people. Like, NBC is the NBC for white people. So, like, you know, I always the fact say, that they don't... I always say you guys can say that, but I can't. But yes, you're right. <laughs> But, you know, not, not NBC in particular, but it's like, no, yeah. it's, it, it's the age old question of why do the black kids sit together in the cafeteria? It's the wrong question because no one is asking why the white kids are sitting together in the cafeteria. It's putting the onus on the marginalized for their own marginalized time frankly in this country but it really comes down to education and people not understanding the context with which they're living in because they've never had to if you're a white person in this country you've made the decision to engage and understand what marginalized people are going through but you don't have to there's nothing that makes you have to the system is, is made for you so you know unfortunately we we don't really educate our white brothers and sisters about the country that they're in um and if they don't decide to educate themselves, then we're at their mercy. We're at the mercy of their ignorance. I'm guessing that was the inspiration for Dear Right People, the, the conservative oh radio show. Well, there were several inspirations for Dear Right People, including the rise of alt-right um, podcasts and radio shows on really refined college campuses that you'd never expect that. I mean, there really is this sort of vacuum where if you're marginally intelligent and you can you have really good rhetoric you can become a big star in this space um and we just saw a lot of frankly young people alarmingly taking that opportunity and saying all kinds of things that are reprehensible but in the name of this new i guess version of ideology called the alt-right you know they're finding a sense of power and uh that was disturbing. And what was even more disturbing is that they were using the language of the actually oppressed in order to support their arguments of supremacy. Um, and it was just something we had to do because we were seeing it happening on college campuses. I uh, One of the things I've always wanted to ask you about, and I've, I forgot to ask last time we discussed the show, at the end of every episode, you have the character whose perspective the story is told from look directly to camera and like they stare there for a moment. I was curious what that meant for you, like what, why that was a choice and what, and what you're saying there. Well, you know, I, 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 I'm remiss to explain every single thing I do and why I do it because I think part of the fun of artists is how it hits you. Yeah. Um, but I will say it's a, it's a motif that we did in the movie uh, and it's something that I, uh, sort of was a big part of silent film history that um, I, we just kind of lost in modern cinema and I think it's a really powerful moment uh, because in film, we're often the voyeurs. We're often like looking in on people's lives and they never notice us. But these are characters who never get noticed in everyday life. These are stories that often are not told. These are people who you never have to look at in the eye and think about what you owe them and what they owe you and what responsibility you might have 
in their lives. And I just thought, you know, I, I just think anytime I break the fourth wall in my work, um, it has a power that I, I just find interesting and I find it, uh, I find it, uh, it's just another tool in my, my cap as a filmmaker uh, that I think uh, sort of makes you stand up and pay attention uh, in certain moments. And it was one of those things that I had really pondered and thought about. And I, and I shot the, I shot the, uh, the first episode, the pilot both ways. And, you know, it was pretty, it was pretty early on. I felt like that was the right choice. Um, yeah. I love that. Okay. So episode two is Reggie's episode. He, we're kind of like exploring like a lot throughout the season with him, really kind of the after effects of, of, uh, last season when he was held at gunpoint by the, by the police and at the party. Um, I love that you kind of unpacked how one deals with that afterward. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about, about his story there? Well, I mean, you know, obviously episode five was so impactful uh, last season. And the temptation, I think, for a lot of TV shows is to sort of, you know, just move on to the next encounter, the next story. But I think part of the conundrum of being black in this country is not only are you marginalized, not only do you have, you know, these microaggressions and then actual aggressions, uh, but you're also expected to sort of act as if you're fine. Yeah. And sort of act as if, you know, we're kind of taught to be, you know, better than everybody else. And, you know, you got to be the talented 10th and you got to, you know, you got to really strive to succeed. And so we have this we have this expectation of ourselves that we're always fine and we're not fine because being a part of any marginalized community, it, it involves a degree of trauma. It, it, it involves a degree of feeling as if you are not worthy and your life is not valid. And the more and more we sort of don't deal with that, uh, the worse it can actually become. And, you know, when you have a gun pointed at you, that's not something that you ever forget. Uh, and I think that it's, it's so much a part of black culture to just sort of forget the slights and to sort of just move on. And I wanted to challenge that. And we also wanted to be realistic about the fact that this brother is going to be dealing with that moment for a long, long time. Like he will forever be shaped by that moment. You know what I'm saying? And it would just be unrealistic and a bit irresponsible to just kind of move on yeah, <laughs> in terms of yeah. the story. Yeah, I I mean, we obviously covered police shootings and things like that of unarmed black people all the time and and uh, situations where black folks deal with, deal with these kinds of things uh, on a regular basis. And I do think that sometimes the story of that person, um, if they are still alive, or the story of that family going forward really gets lost. And we don't think about the ways that that person or that family is impacted going forward um, and how that begins to shape who they are, how they see the world, how they address um, police officers, but also white people and their friends and their lives. So um, I thought that was really, really powerful. I, I loved what you did with that. Thank you, man. Um, Thank you. So we kind of see Reggie, uh, we see him uh, talking with the dean. We see him talk with the, uh, with friends and like the ways that he's seeing white people differently uh, in the world and even uh, and, and really kind of having a break there. Uh, Sam had a break at the end of episode one where she begins to cry and says, you know, fuck these people. I don't want to deal with this. And Reggie has a moment as well where he he kind of decides, like, I, I have to deal with this. Um, I'm, I'm, I would imagine that you were kind of inspired by the, the stories of people that we've seen um, more regularly uh, in the news with that. But I, I wanted to let you speak to that. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, all, some of it too is just the fact that like when we get into the weeds of researching this stuff, I, I honestly, Jared, I find myself just weeping sometimes. I mean, it is, it is really, it's hard. It's really hard to realize how much we've endured and how much we sort of pretend we're okay with what we've endured and the collective amnesia of this country, it can sometimes just get to be a lot. And I wanted to put an emotional core beneath all of it. You know, you, you see black folks protesting and being strong and clapping back, but you very rarely, rarely see us unpacking and dealing with the trauma of our experiences. And we all do in some way or another. I mean, I think one of the big reasons why the Sandra Bland of it all was so controversial is because white people really couldn't understand what she was, why was she mouthing off to that cop? Because they can't fathom a world in which they've been stopped by the police multiple times uh, just trying to get home from work. And, you know, oftentimes black folks, we just don't have that outlet, you know, like therapy, sure, it's like, it's been a little bit taboo in the black community, but also there's not as many therapists that can understand and speak to our experiences. And um, no matter what marginalized community, you're, you're gay, uh, black, trans, whatever, it, it's a traumatic experience to, to grow up in a culture that really wasn't built for you in mind, and it can break your heart. And I wanted to give the characters and the audience and myself, frankly, that catharsis. Um, I also, something a little bit less serious, I feel like Reggie is also kind of becoming a bit of a fashionista, and I'm kind of loving it. Uh, oh yeah! Like oh yeah! Reggie's giving us like Reggie's giving us all the sweaters, the plaid pants, the jackets. Like what? What's the perspective there with him and his fashion? Because it's awesome. Well, you know, we have an amazing costume designer. Her name is Sassy. She really is a genius. And if you really look at the frames, I mean, everybody is dressed. Dressed down. I mean, everybody, the extras, the people in the far back. I mean, she just really is an amazing, amazing costume designer. And one of the things that we talked about early on is that, you know, if you're going to do a story about identity and self, you have to get into tribalism. You have to get into cliques. You have to get into, like, showing, kind of peacocking, you know, to people what you want them to think about you. And, um, and so, you know, that's why, the, that's why the clothing is so a part of the height reality of it all, because we want you to sort of have these impressions of characters that you're meeting before and after you really get to know them. And, uh, and you know, we're also seeing kids sort of find their own unique identities and how to express that. So the clothes is a big part of that. Um, but, you know, Ceci is also very fashionable, and she has a way of taking what's particular about a character and making choices that are with or without, you know, outside of what we think of as fashion, it makes them pop. It makes them specific to the character and the actors. I mean, she really is very gifted in that way. So moving into episode three, um, we're seeing Lionel and we're kind of getting Lionel this season really gets to kind of come out in multiple ways, right? Like, obviously, he's he's out, but like he's starting to like explore uh, his the gay culture i guess you can say um and for a while there it seems like we're gonna see him in a relationship and then we're like oh wait nope this isn't gonna happen maybe it is um and i know that you identify with lionel's character so talk to me about uh lionel's journey uh in episode three and, and what are you what 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 it meant to you well again i had this critique in me about the gay culture and particularly the way it's, it's showed in, in movies and films, which is that, like, once you come out in a TV show, it's like you're just accepted into this beautiful gay mecca where 
you know, you get to just find your person and have sex and just be free. And it's like, I've never had that experience personally. And in fact, being black and gay is quite a, it's quite a conundrum because you're dealing with two sets of marginalized communities, both of which have their own versions of marginalization within. It's really crazy. And I think this idea that the gay community is somehow open and affirming it's just BS. And I wanted to show a character trying to navigate that. Um, because now that he's gay, he has to sort of now decide, well, what kind of gay are you? And which, you know, where, what, what in this new subculture do you fit? And how do you, like, it's just, I, I basically wanted to show that, you know, coming out was step one in a very long journey of Lionel finding himself and also kind of, frankly, air my grievances about what it feels like to be black and gay. Uh, out here in these streets. Um, you know, I, I, his sort of journey through the different pockets of gay at Winchester, um, you know, was my way of sort of saying that even within a, a quote-unquote marginalized community, there are still so many sections and conundrums and issues. I mean, everything from the black guy that Lionel meets at the party that tells him he doesn't date other black guys to, you know, sort of being a part of this waspy conversation where he's completely invisible. I mean, these are all the experiences that I've had. <laughs> and um, and I just needed a place to put that. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to ask you, because like, I, I totally understand the idea of trying to figure out where you fit in in gay culture, especially as a black gay person. Um, I always joke that being black and gay, like everyone in, black gay com- in the black gay community is separated by like one or maybe three quarters of a degree of separation. Um, so we all kind of know each other, but being black and being gay, like gayness is when we talk about gayness from a mainstream conversation, it's usually, um, kind of through the perspective of white gayness and it doesn't really explore being black and gay and, or being a nerd and being gay or being like all of the different things that you can be. And, and I think that mainstream culture kind of has this idea that, oh, you're all gay. Like what else do you want? And doesn't really appreciate that. Um, the the guys and also, and also it's it's white it's white male gay culture and frankly white male gay culture doesn't really have a lot of room for black people it's sort of you know, black folks sort of are a part of white gay culture uh, almost as like an exotic figure it really truly was not until RuPaul's Drag Race and I'm being really honest here it wasn't until Drag Race that you really saw black people readily in the gay community and being in a lot of ways the source for gay culture Mm. um that's like a new thing you know what i'm saying and even even at the drag shows they they report how a white queen will just have more fans line up for them even though the black queen just like gave the performance of their life so yeah it's racism in the gay community is pretty rampant man it's a pretty and and not only racism but like self-hatred that's that that moment when lionel starts just casually talking to the black guy who says he doesn't date black guys I can't tell you how many times I encountered that. I mean, it's we, it's just bizarre. It's a bizarre, it's a bizarre arena that has really not been explored fully. Yeah, that that was an interesting moment um, to kind of watch. And like later on in the season, obviously uh, Lionel kind of finds a, a love interest that we see him with a little bit more consistently. Um, and that person is not black. And I know that there are people who have feelings about that as well. Um, and I, I don't know if you want to speak to that in this episode or in the later episode, but talk to me about him finding someone that was not black and, and arriving at that. Well, I mean, what do you want? It's like, <laughs> you know, you can, 
you can live in a fantasy world or not, okay? This is the reality of a lot of people. When you're in a white-dominated society and you're black, and you just can't... It's, it's harder to find somebody that's also the same race, that's also the same, you know, point of view. That It's, 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 it's like... It's just like smaller and smaller and smaller slivers of possibility. And if you're the type of person who wants to take a television show as scripture and say, oh, Lionel ending up with a Latino guy means that black people shouldn't date black people, honestly, that's, that's, that, I, I, I can't help you with that. I'm just not, I, I never, I don't make, I don't make propaganda. I don't make um, PSAs. You know what I mean? I make art and I tell stories that attempt at a truth. Um, and mind you, there's just I don't moralize, frankly, over what race people find each other in. It's hard enough to find somebody that you love and that cares for you and that sort of meets the same requirements that you have. You know, adding race into it, you know, it would be kind of a fantasy if all of the black people just ended up with other black people. That would not be a reflection <laughs> of the reality that I'm aware of and have lived in my whole life. Last, so. thing, last thing in this episode that I want to touch on is I love how Troy is really Lionel's wingman. And like, I don't feel like we see that image enough of like the straight friend who is very down for their gay friend and like wants to see them happy, wants to see them like fully realized as a gay man. And like, you're getting late tonight. We're going to find you a guy. You're going to, you, I want you to be happy. Why aren't you like uh, unpack that a little bit for me before we move on to the next one. Well, we have that choice of like, should, you know, is Troy going to be weird about Lionel being gay? And frankly, I've seen that story a lot and that's not, it's, it's a true story that happens a lot, but I've also seen the opposite. Like there's lots of black straight guys that don't have a problem with gay guys. And you know, the sort of critique of homophobia in the black community I think it's a fair critique, and I think it exists in the culture. What I haven't seen in the culture are, you know, gay and straight black guys that are just homies. I've never, I haven't really seen that in the culture, but that's been my experience. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes, I've, I've run into homophobic people, and, and yes, I've had issues in the black community, but honestly, like, I have lots of straight male friends that are just my homies, and there's no weirdness about it. Like, there is, that is a version of black man that exists right now. And I thought, you know, why not put that out there in the culture? We haven't seen that before. Um, and also, mind you, Lionel's been in love with Troy this whole time. Just for the, you know, does Lionel not like black people thing? Like, he, he's, yeah. you know, Troy was his number one. And Troy said no. So, you know, <laughs> Lionel's trying to be healthy and move on. That's all that's happening. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, episode four, we see Coco. And she, Coco goes through it. I mean, We've we've kind of eliminated all the spoilers at this point, so we can talk about it. Coco, at the at this episode, finds out she's pregnant with Troy's baby, um, and has to figure out what to do with that. Um, there's so much to there's so much to unpack in just that by itself. Talk to me about what you were feeling, thinking, and and discussing with your team uh, for episode four. Yeah, well, you know, this was one of those things where. Um the the a couple writers had this idea that she should get pregnant and they brought it to me almost like you know hey you're not gonna like this but what if we did this and i was like no i actually think that's really interesting because um black women who get pregnant uh it, it is not something that's really unpacked and dealt with in television shows and the choice of having an abortion or not is is different for black women than it is for white women and 
there's a shame. There is a uh, there's a there's a, a a whole list of stereotype uh, elements that are on top of it about being a black unwed mother. There is having to weigh ambition, having to weigh you know cultural uh, religious ideas. Um, you know, having to weigh the way you were raised based upon how you want to raise your child. There's just so many other issues at play. And I felt like black women having to deal with this choice is still very taboo within the black community. I can't tell you how many women who are friends of mine, you know, have pulled me aside to tell me, hey, you know what, five years ago, I had to make this choice or, you know, whatever. And, it, and it, it's something that women, you know, I've, I've noticed that black women hold in a different way. And I felt like we had an opportunity to give voice to that story and to not moralize it, you know, not to say that she was right or she was wrong, but to really sort of put out there how difficult a decision it is. And and to layer on top of that all of the other stuff that goes along with being a black woman, like proving that you're not what people think you are and, you know, doing better than what is expected of you. And um, but also wanting to be a mother and feeling like you're expected to have the child and keep the child. There's just a lot. There's a lot of other layers when, you know, you're dealing with a black woman. And I felt like a lot of women needed, needed that voice and needed that space to see their story told, man. That's like that's a story that black women never get to tell themselves or see themselves in and I felt like the women in my room needed to tell the story I, I knew several people in my life that I wanted to tell the story on behalf of and it just felt like a beautiful unique and interesting episode one of the other things that I find really interesting with Coco's character is how she uses her blackness as a currency with her white friends if you will and that may not be the best way to put that I'm not sure but like she uses it to for as power, I guess, with her white friends. And, and, uh, and I, I'm curious about that. Like I, I watch it and I'm like, that's a really interesting thing. And I know that that's, that she's not the only person who's ever done that. And I know that there are plenty of people who can relate to her experience as being a black woman in a, that speaks a certain way and that looks a different way and dresses a, a way that like people are going to feel like she, she's not being authentically black, but this is authentic to her. Um, can you speak to that a little bit about well, yeah, I mean, we all kind of have to do this in American society. And I think that, like, you know, each of the characters has a different approach to being black in a white-dominated dom society. And Coco's is more like, well, look, I'm already going to be stereotyped, and I'm already going to have to run up against people's assumptions of me. Like, instead of fighting that system, I, I would actually rather use the system in order to get what I want personally. You know, like mm. she's kind of of the mindset that if she can be in a powerful position, she's going to be able to enact change a lot easier than just fighting it from from below, right? fighting it from the ground up. And there's no moralizing. There's no this is the right way. This is the wrong way. The truth is, any black person who has ever not been just around black people has had this experience where you find yourself playing a bit into a stereotype or or sort of giving a person what you think that they want of you. I mean, we all kind of have to do it at a certain point, and it feels dirty, and it feels conflicting, but it's also kind of inevitable. And I think that Coco's character is a way to explore all of that. You know, like, who hasn't felt like you've had to shuck and jive? Who hasn't felt like you've had to answer the phone with a different voice? Or, you know, if somebody like, ooh, girlfriend, I like you, you know, you sass it up a little bit more. We've all been there. It's part of human nature, and it's more complicated because... You know, we're black and black is a form of marginalization still in this country. So 
it is it's weird and it's messy and it's just for me that equals an area that needs to be explored. I I mean, I can hear a listener listening to this and they're like, I've never had to do that, but then they think about like how many of us have ever code switched ever in our lives and like how many of us have it's yeah. It's imp- it's impossible to go through life. Well, it's not impossible. It's not impossible, but I would say it's very difficult to go through American life and not code switch your blackness up or down depending on the situation. Absolutely. I feel like I feel like we've all done that. And whether like our intentions are are noble or not, it's a survival tactic. You know what I'm saying? Like if you walk into a job interview, I mean really think about it. You need a job. There's, your dream job is in front of you. And you walk into that job interview and there's a white person interviewing you and that white person loves black people and loves black culture and loves hip-hop music. What are you going to do? You know what I'm saying? Are you going to put your your white voice on for that person or are you going to put your black voice on for that person if you walk into a job interview and that and the and the white person interviewing you is proper and and you know has you know all of these very sort of uh um is putting on airs and sort of is expecting everyone to be educated and speak what are you going to do you know what i'm saying like we all do it it's a it's it's a survival instinct yeah um but the but the conundrum is is that when we go home we have to live with that choice and think about oh god did i encourage a stereotype did i do something that's going to box me in? Did I do something that's going to box other people in? Um, and instead of putting a moral on it, instead of putting a you should do this or you should do that on it, with Coco, I think we're just exploring it and exploring the pros and cons and exploring what happens when a person just leans into that reality. And finally, before we move off of episode four, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Nia, who plays Kelsey, who is uh, a love, Stunning. like, adore, adore, adore Nia. Um, Kelsey comes out in this episode and no one was expecting it. And it's kind of become a thing online as well. People discussing like how Kelsey is, is not like the typical lesbian. And I, I'm curious what you were, uh, what, what the decision making was there or the discussion about making Kelsey a lesbian. Well, I just feel like, you know, black lesbians are not, they really don't have a, they don't occupy enough space in our culture and I'm not a black lesbian. So, you know, I'm not making the black lesbian show, but in a show where all of the characters are sort of dealing with a singular point of view, um, I thought it would be interesting to at least begin to open that door so that we could get into it, you know, potentially in later seasons. Um, and also because again, like Kelsey is with all of the characters, you meet characters through a certain point of view and you make all of these judgments about them. And then the job of the show is to sort of take you beneath the judgments and take you past how you saw the characters. And that just felt like a really interesting way to do that with her, to give her some depth, to give her a point of view, and to open the door to more stories that I would love to tell, you know, outside of the kind of uh, the, the original four that everyone fell in love with from the movie. Yeah, I love, I love. Kelsey, I think she's she's Kelsey has a lot of hilarious lines and moments, so just really love that. So episode five is Joelle's episode. I know a lot of people were waiting for Joelle to get her episode and wanted to see like what Joelle was gonna do, where she was gonna go, and more so like who she was going to fall in love with. Um, we've seen her kind of dancing around a relationship with Reggie, but it never really happened uh, last season, and like it was kind of toyed with here and there. And then she meets this man in class and I was talking with friends about it. And I was like, this guy was so unexpected for me. Like he didn't look like I expected him to look. He didn't feel like I expected him to feel. But like, as soon as he came into the episode, I was like, oh, I love this for her. 
and was, <laughs> was really into it. Like, oh, this is so great. We'll talk about the ending in a minute. But like, first of all, uh, tell me like how you wanted to unpack Joel this season. Well, I mean, this one was for the Kellys. You know what I mean? Like, there were lots of people who were like, well, how come Joel and how come the focus on the light skin? Not you know, not to mention that like Coco is a part of the cast and like there's lots of dark skin women, whatever. But I, I wanted to translate that into this character because that is her. That is that conundrum. You can be gorgeous, talented, amazing, but if you're darker skinned, you know what I mean. Your light skinned sister gets all the all the credit. And so I wanted to kind of get into that colorism and embrace embrace, frankly, some of the gripes about season one. Uh, and, and embody it through Joelle and her character and also get into how complicated it is to be dark-skinned. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it it shouldn't be, but it just is, man. Like, there is, it is different for the Kellys. And um, I wanted to give voice to that, but I also wanted to take Joelle on a fun journey because Joelle is a fun character. She does not have a chip on her shoulder. She's incredibly erudite and intelligent. Um, and she's well adjusted and I wanted to show, well, that, that girl still has it hard too. And, um, you know, with Shamir, who we cast as her love interest, I mean, I just thought he was smooth and charming and I, I just liked their chemistry together, but there's also a quality in his performance that makes you go, "Mm, it's everything right here. And the thing that I think is interesting is, um, I think, I think, uh, when you're part of a marginalized group, if you're a dark skinned woman, whatever, you're more susceptible to a social predator. You're more susceptible to fall for, you know, that, that sort of like uh, wolf in sheep's clothing. And so we just thought that would be an interesting episode to get into the colorism of, of it all, get into like how hoteps can really dupe you without <laughs> you realizing it. Um, and, also, and also, again, just give voice to anyone that felt like this show didn't see them. You know what I'm saying? And, and sort of wasn't focused on their experience because... That's really important to us, and and the and the, and the Joels. I mean, those are who those are some of our biggest fans, and it just wouldn't be right to not give her an episode. When I brought her, when I brought um, Ashley into season one, and, and sort of expanded upon the character that she started in the film, um, it was always my goal to give that character her own episode. You know, but you have a ten episode show, you have to service the characters that people know. Um, but I, I knew that she would break out and I knew that people would want more of her. And I'm just so glad. I'm just so glad it worked out in this way because I think Ashley is just so freaking talented and, and really is the voice of a lot of our watchers. Speaking to her being super talented, um, she begins to sing in this episode and we see her sing a few times throughout the season, but like, um, talk to me about like the choice there. Cause I know that, you know, Ashley can sing, but like, we didn't know that Joelle could sing and like, this is a great opportunity to kind of showcase that, I guess. Um, what, what, where did the idea for her being a singer come from? I mean, a lot of it comes from just our observing the actors because at a certain point in a television show, the actors are more responsible for the characters than even the writers are because they're embodying them. They're giving them daily life. And it really came out of a moment of, honestly, me and Ashley and my composer hanging around singing Tyrone and putting it on iTunes I'm not sorry, not iTunes. <laughs> well, it's on iTunes now. It is on iTunes now, yeah. Uh, but uh, on uh, on Instagram, 
And it just felt so Ashley and it felt so real and it felt, it just felt good. And I, I remember playing it in the writer's room and it honestly was very organic. It just became a part of the episode. And another reason why Joelle is the perfect girl for Reggie, but he just can't get his head out of his ass to see her in the way she needs to be seen. It was just another way to tell that story and also showcase, you know, this beautiful voice and another aspect of Ashley that we see in Joelle as the writers. Last thing on this episode, we also begin to see, like, this secret alliance with Gabe. I think that's the first time we see it, where it was like, oh, there's something happening here behind the scenes. And it's not, like, a love relationship, but it is, like, a budding friendship or a a comfortability, at the very least, with each other um, that we would see kind of play out later in the season. Um, Talk to me about about where where you wanted to go with that, where you were thinking that. Um, say that one more time. I'm sorry. It just broke out a little bit. No, yeah. We, I'm saying this is where we kind of start to see, like, the beginning of – I think this is the first time we see in the season that Gabe and Joel have been kind of secretly having a friendship and kind of talking behind the scenes. And it's not romantic, but it's like a friendship and an understanding. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. I mean, a lot of times in the writer's room, we just sort of get a sense for things. And especially if they feel unexpected, we like to lean into them. And one of the things that was really great about last season is there's a moment when Gabe is struggling with whether or not to tell Sam uh, that he called the cops. And they just fell into a friendship rhythm that we all thought was interesting. And we all kind of feel like, you know, if you're Gabe, why wouldn't you want to be around more Joelle? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, he's... they they both are shady and smart and funny. They both know how to deal with Sam and they both are kind of like unexpected friends. So it just felt like, it felt really good. It just felt great seeing them together uh, and exploring what that friendship might look like. And, And also because everyone this season, if you notice, has secrets. Everyone this season is sort of defending against how they're seen versus what they really are and what they really do. And we just thought it would be an interesting conundrum for Joelle to be becoming friends with her best friend's ex. Uh, and a white guy who maybe is into her, we're not sure. Like, it, it, it just felt like a good zone to be in. Um, okay, moving on to episode six. This is one of my favorites of the season. Um, episode six is the, the noir episode. You, you kind of, we're kind of like... Uh, detective investigation situation um, and it's I love it for a bunch of different reasons but uh, this is another episode that you actually directed um, talk to me about what you wanted to do with this episode uh, well I wanted to do a few things um, you know Lion, again this is this season in particular is about secrets it's about secret histories it's about uncovering the truth and um Lionel is one of those people who is struggling to do this in his everyday life. Uh, so he's channeling it into his passion. And it, it really is the first time where we see Lionel really stepping out underneath the shadow of somebody else, not asking permission to do something, just going forth and doing it and sort of moving in something resembling his own truth, you know? So it was an important episode for me. To see, uh, to see through, and what you know, and also Brooke was this really interesting foil from um, from season one. The sort of like you know, the two tokens in the room, sort of naturally being antagonistic against each other, uh, and it just became this sort of madcap, almost charade like uh, comedic uh, detective story. 
And as a person who's always loved film noir and loved the good satirical uh, caper, it was just irresistible to me as a filmmaker, as a director. Um, I've never really gotten to direct uh, in noir style. So it was just, it was a great exercise for me. But also it was, I think it's one of our funniest episodes. It really is kind of purely comedic. And though Lionel is dealing with a lot of stuff and there's a huge, huge revelation in the episode, um, it's also just a really fun adventure. Like it really is kind of an adventure episode. And I think it gets us tonally ready for where the season ends up by the end. Um, Because this big sort of secret society mystery you know, Lionel's sort of the, uh, he's the driving force behind that plot line. So this is when that really gets ramped up. So you you kind of touched on uh, the actress's name is Courtney. She plays a character named Brooke. And she becomes one of my favorite things of this season as well. Uh, I reached out to Courtney when I was watching it. I was like, I love everything you're doing in this. I think this episode is hilarious. I think your character is hilarious. I love it. Um, I have the episode playing on the screen right now, and I, I also I, I love the moment where they come up and the the bananas are hanging there, and they're like, maybe they wrote bitch like in power, and it's like bitch, and like there's so much great in this episode. But talk to me about Brooke's character because she kind of comes out of like we we haven't really seen a whole lot of her before, um, but she is a big part of this episode, and then by the end of it, she obviously takes a turn that we didn't see coming necessarily. Um, Brooke is Brooke is awesome, and I I want to know more about her. Well, in the same way that like like so, Courtney and I actually went to high school together, uh, and I've known Ashley for years, and I've known Nia for years, and these are actors who frankly don't really fit in like a box that is typical for black actors. Like you know, like no one's checking for unique quirky black women, frankly. And Brooke really like it's it's almost like uh, it's not who Courtney is. But it, it kind of came out of what I always wanted to see Courtney play and also just creating a perfect foil for Lionel. And that combined with Jack Moore and Chuck Hayward, who are the writers on the episodes, who are just shady, funny people, we just sort of collectively created this person that we were obsessed with in the room that, you know, I've just kind of been chopping at the bit to see Courtney play for a long time. Um, and I And again, if, you know... Uh, the, the right foil for a person like Lionel is everything that he's not. So she is outspoken. She's overly driven. She dominates the conversation. She is, um, you know, where, where Lionel is sort of sexually inhibited. She has no inhibitions, you know, and, and, and she's kind of like an unlikely ally for him. And kind of a, you know, we always sort of hate the people that show us what we need to be. And I think, I think Brooke is that for Lionel. And, you know, honestly, once we just started putting them together in our imaginations, it was just irresistible. It was an irresistible combination. And again, it, again, it was a platform for this actor who I've known for a long time to really shine and show what she can do. So it was all of those things for me. I, I, I love the episode. Um, and I just thought it was so, so funny. So then episode seven, um, we're really looking at Troy and we're kind of getting a, a feel for like, everything that he's kind of going through. And I thought this was interesting because we see Troy like trying out things. We see Troy in a very different light. We see Troy addressing his dad. Um, talk to me about where Troy is and what you wanted to, to explore with him. Well, you know, we've seen, we've seen this sort of like pent up Ivy league preppy boy who is living in the shadow of his father. And I thought it was, it was high time for us to see, well, what's beneath that. You know, um, the thing about Troy is that he's so, 
his father is so protective of him and so worried about what will happen to him that he's kind of created the shell of a person for Troy to live inside of. And when that shell is broken open, literally when he breaks the window in episode 10 of last season, you know, we wanted to see, well, what was underneath that? And oftentimes underneath the roles that straight men play are boys who really haven't had a chance to figure out what they want and haven't had a chance to figure out who they would be if they weren't so busy being all the things that they're supposed to be. Mm. And, um, you know, Troy is one of those characters where, again, we think we know him. We've seen a very specific side to him. And I just wanted to get deeper, man. I just wanted to get deeper into what his psyche was about, into what motivated him. Because, frankly, black men, especially straight black men, don't always have a chance to do that because black male masculinity is a expectation for black men, gay, straight, whoever you are. Um, and, and that expectation can sometimes delay when we get to really figure out who we are. And I wanted to go there with him. I'm, and Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go finish. Oh, yeah. And, I, and you know, mush, a mushroom trip to me is the best way to get into someone's psyche. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have been having this conversation with uh, some of my straight male friends. And, like, I say it jokingly, but I also really – it's rooted in, in honesty. I feel like – straight men probably have a bit of jealousy for out gay men. And and when I say that, I mean that I think straight men have this whole idea of who they're supposed to be, especially with black men, about what masculinity has to look like, how you can't be emotional, you can't feel, you can't, you know, explore the different avenues of yourself, but you have this rigid idea. But I think as a gay black man, I'm allowed to be emotional. I'm allowed to be creative in a way that uh, straight men probably can't be. And I love that you're you're kind of unpacking the possibilities of who Troy could be outside of the expectations of what he's supposed to be because of his upbringing or his background um, and and how he presents right now and how that can change. Like, I think that's really really interesting. Yeah, and I mean, you look at human history, and straight men have never presented consistently in one way throughout human history. I mean, you go back in time, and it's like the straightest, most masculine thing to do would be wearing heels and a white wig with tights in a fitted satin uh, situation. I mean, that's like, you know, that's how you show, that's how you peacocked and showed how much of a G you were, you know what I'm saying, at certain points in time in history. And so we happen to be in this time period where straight masculinity, especially for black men, because black men, you know, it's like you can't take any chances, man. You got to like, you got to hit the target or else you may not get another chance. Um... It's another kind of track. It's another form of oppression. And uh, I wanted to get into that, you know? I love that. I really love it. And then we also, uh, we kind of meet the, what he calls the black Illuminati. Um, or, or like, this is kind of speaking to the secret society piece that we know is that we end up at the end. Um, and Troy is really rejecting it. And Troy is like, no, I'm not going to do this. Um, and he also has a conversation with his father about how, his father has presented to Reggie in a very different way than he's presented to him. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I mean, you know, we wanted to talk about this idea of what power means and what the, you know, real power means in, in, in America. And a lot of times power in America, uh, it's kept that way because the powerful keep the way they operate in secret and, and hidden. And for black folks, it's different because the stakes are so much higher I think for white, wealthy men in powerful positions, the stakes are we don't want to lose what we have. For black folks, it's we 
you know, if we, we need to gain a foothold in this country, if we're to have any say in our future, the stakes are just a lot higher. And so, um, you know, any sort of prominent black person, there's just, they, they are wearing the weight of their entire race on their shoulders. You know, Ta-Nehisi Coates just wrote this article about, you know, how, you know, Michael Jackson was black God and, and Kanye is the new black God. And when they do these things, you know, it affects all of us. And, and I think Troy is feeling the weight of that. Again, it's a different kind of oppression masquerading as power. But it is a very real thing for black people who you might think of as powerful and or in, you know, powerful positions. They are actually in their own version of a trap and their own version of oppression. I thought that'd be an interesting thing to explore. Um, and, you know, the other thing about it is, is our parents, man, like our, our parents really are so terrified that we are going to encounter the same things that they encountered that they they sometimes overdo it and they sometimes fill us with all kinds of fears and anxieties and worries that are more about their generation than it is about us. And sometimes we also don't listen enough to them. And I think we wanted to just kind of present that with Troy and his dad in a way that felt fair and felt unmoralized and show that his dad really does love him and his dad does have a paternal instinct. He just, you know, is so terrified of what might happen to Troy that it expresses in this very kind of authoritarian way. Um, So we wanted to show that, but without demonizing either side or demonizing anybody and show that even in the upper echelons of class, you know what I mean? We talk, people talk, people want to act as if race is a distraction from the discussion of class, but people don't realize that race is a version of class. And even in the highest levels of society, um, being black still keeps you out of the real powerful position. The most powerful black man in in the world, Barack Obama you know, we're seeing his legacy literally be stripped away policy by policy. You know, he is the most powerful black man so far in this country. And look at how limited, um, how many limits were placed upon him and his powers and his um, abilities as a president. Uh, we wanted to show that, like, even though you think, like, Troy's rich and he's light-skinned and he gets all the girls and you think, what does he have to complain about? He himself is also subjected to... Um, this oppressive society as well. Like no one can escape it. Last thing in this episode before we move out, move on. Um, you you stand up comedy for Troy, and I felt like it was an interesting vehicle. And I was curious what the thought process was is using him like strike bat take go stepping up to bat and like really striking out um, as a stand up comic, and then coming back at the end of the episode. What was the the thought process around him being a stand up com- or going out for stand up comedy? Well, you know, it's, it's a thread we started with the film and that Troy has this secret passion to, like, write jokes and be funny. And, you know, I don't know that he's great at stand-up comedy, but it's a it's a step. It's a, it's a step in the right direction in his journey of figuring out who he was. And it just felt like the most terrifying thing to put him through. You know what I'm saying? Um, and it also felt like the, the next step for somebody who's kind of coveted being a comedy writer working for pastiche. Well, how do you do that? You know, how does a person like Troy do that? Well... You know, the thought was, well, he would probably bank on being a known person, being a person that a lot of people likes and a person who's used to standing up in front of people and being applauded, uh, you know, the hubris of doing something like that, but not really being good at it. It just sort of felt like right for Troy. And it felt like a journey to put him on where he would have stakes and a lot of obstacles to overcome and a journey that would open the door to a lot of future possibilities for the character. Awesome. Okay, so episode eight is... 
arguably my favorite episode. I love eight. I love six. But episode eight, it was about 10 minutes in and I, I started to realize like, I think we're going to be here the whole episode. And I'm like loving it and seeing us move around the studio set. Before we get into like the specifics of it, talk to me about what inspired you for episode eight. Well, we were just talking about, you know, we were in the room and, and talking about what this inevitable face-off between Sam and Gabe might be. And um, it was the most exciting idea was like, well, let's just lock him in a room. Like, you know, I remember we were talking about doing a bottle episode and I said, well, instead of doing a bottle episode with all of our sets, like, why don't we just do a bottle? Like, what if we did something that just take, took place in the radio station? And Jack, who, Jack Moore, the writer who has a playwriting background, um, he just thought that was exciting and th- we were all kind of scared of it and then we broke the story and read the draft and was like, oh, this is great. Um, and, you know, I, I've always, you know, I think people, I think it's lazy, but people always compare me to Spike or Wes Anderson or something and it's, part of it is because my world is heightened and it's showy and it's very like, you know, you're watching a movie. Um, but at the end of the day, like, the masters that I watch can shoot the phone book, do you know what I mean? And like Mike Nichols and Sidney Lumet and those kind of directors, like they they're able to turn two characters in a room and make you feel the visceralness of that conversation. So for me, it just felt like a really exciting challenge as a, as a filmmaker to tell a whole story in one room with two characters with no music. I mean, there's a little bit of music before the title card, but the actual scene itself has no music, no score, no pop cues, nothing to break the tension. Besides the camera cuts. So, um, and I just like, it just sounded fun. <laughs> so for people that don't understand what a bottle episode is, can you unpack what that is and how it's usually used? Because I feel like you didn't use it in the so way that people use it. a bottle episode typically is when a, yeah, so a bottle episode is typically uh, when a television show shoots um, just, the, just the regular cast on just the sort of pre-built sets. So there's no like going outside, there's no... Um, you know, there's no like you know in shows you, you see you see environments in TV shows that you see every episode, and then you see new environments. It's, there's no new vi- environments. You're literally like it's you're in a bottle. And it's called a bottle episode because everyone's kind of stuck in the sets. <laughs> most most recent. Well, oh, go ahead. And yeah, and so you know, for us, a bottle episode would be the series regulars, Armstrong Parker, the dorms. You know, because it, it would just be the sets that we have standing. Yeah, for the most recent uh, bottle episode I saw on a network show was the Blackish episode where they were all playing board games in the house the entire episode. And I remember being halfway through it and realizing like, oh, this is a bottle. Okay, okay. And yeah. then, and also, and also thinking to myself, like, I know they blew their budget out with their opening episode of the season and how a bottle episode sometimes is to save money uh, or to yeah, make up budget. It but it seemed like it, it was sometimes to save money. I mean, for us, it was a creative choice. Right. It seemed like a really fun challenge and it did save money, but you know, that's not why we did it. We did it because it was, um, it just felt like the most interesting way to do it. And in a lot of ways, the conversation that Sam and Gabe are having is the conversation that I think so many of us wish we could have on Twitter, but we're limited by certain character links and the fact that on Twitter, you just have to be right. No one actually listens to each other. Right. So we, we, we just, it felt like it, anything more than the two of them felt like it would be sort of beside the point and so, breaking the tension. So getting into that conversation. So it's very, their conversation has so many levels. Um, 
And, I, I mean, we've kind of been waiting the whole season to see how they would interact and what that first conversation would be like. Um, talk to me about the writing the different uh, notes that this conversation that you wanted to hit in this in this conversation between the two of them. Well, we just, I mean, you know, the conversation reflects uh, us kind of battling out, battling it out ideologically in the room. It's like, you know, what is Sam upset about and what does she have the right to be upset about? And what is Gabe upset about and what does he have the right to be upset about? And just letting them have at it without us as the writers trying to moralize it or sort of come down on one side or the other. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, in each new draft, it was really all about making sure that nobody was like clearly the winner or clearly the, you know, because we didn't want it to be dogmatic. We didn't want it. We didn't want anyone to feel like they're being preached to. And at the end of the day, all of this argument is really getting in the way of, of what's really happening in the scene, which is Sam is trying to decide if she can trust this person because she loves him. And he's trying to decide if he can trust her because he loves her. And these are two people that if it wasn't for the society that they find themselves in, would just be together. And, you know, so in a lot of ways, it's about, it's about the things that keep us apart. Um, it's about the things that are important, the ways in which we want to feel heard. Um, it's about listening. Uh, and it's about, you know, what a conclusion to an argument could look like. Cause so many of us never get there when we have these conversations. I, I thought it was, just really, really beautifully done. Um, I I called a friend of yours and ours, and I said, "Have you watched episode eight? Justin did that. Oh my god!" Like we were just going off. I was like snapping the TV down. It was just like by the end That's of it. I do, I do it for the snaps. You, I know you do it for the snaps. I know you do it for the snaps. I was just like, I'm gonna break the finger off. I was just like, you better work. Like I was, I was so excited by the end of episode eight because I just thought it was such a strong piece of work. Like, oh, thank um, you. all of season two, like, really raised the bar, and I thought episode eight was just like a such a strong, strong episode. So, um, really, really nice. Okay, so then at the end of the episode, Joelle comes in and she she kind of like rips all of our hearts out and says, "Sam, you got to go home," <clears throat> and we have to take. A trip back home and it was and I didn't even realize this but we've never been that I can remember at least off of campus yeah never I mean you go you go to the town you go to a bar in in like the town with uh, Troy and Lionel in one of the episodes but you never go off campus and you know that was really intentional because Winchester is kind of this um, you know stand-in for America and so keeping the world singular for that first season was really important um, but you know, this is a, this in the second season. We really are sort of discovering and exploring the secrets that the characters keep from themselves and from each other. And for Sam, that required us to go home and and sort of you know visualize what 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 is the what are the conversations that are happening in her head, you know? And nothing does that better than family, honey. <laughs> <laughs> so so talk to me about putting together her family because when we get to her house. Um, I, I was well. First of all, they they have this long car ride um, <laughs> with the three of them, and like Coco was going into like finally, I think. And a friend of mine was saying like, "I wonder if it's like finally we're leaving campus, or finally we're doing this." Or fi-. I was like, "I don't even know if that meant anything." I mean, it could have, I guess, but like, I think you might be reading too far into that. But then nothing no, seems I'm like gonna, it's an I'm gonna I'm gonna say that that's on purpose now. No, it was. I mean. We were <laughs> 
I mean, the, you know, that song is a joke line, really. It's like, what what lame-ass song is Coco about to bring in this car that also, though, Loki goes in? I mean, that really was the idea. I love it. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, and that's where we landed. And, of course, you know, we love Finally. <laughs> yeah. So, and it felt, and it did feel, you know, I'll say as far as what you're saying, it felt like a, a song that was appropriate to what was happening with, with them, which is that they were free. I mean, they really were free of you know, um, Winchester in a way, but of course you can never really outrun your problems. Um, it's crazy. I'm passing by one of our billboards right now. That's nuts. I'm, that, very surreal. I'm sure that's a really cool moment every time it happens. It, you know, it didn't happen a lot last season. We, did, we only had one uh, in LA. So this season, it's a real treat to see us all over the place. I think people are ready for the title finally. At least I hope so. <laughs> or, or, or people just are going to have to deal with it. One or the other. You know, I, I still I still grapple with what the big deal is. Like, I really do. Like, even you know, even when I was sort of writing the the film, and I was like, "Oh, this title is going to be a little provocative." I never thought people would really be like offended by it because to me, like, it's so benign. It's like it's how you start every email. It's like, "Dear Jared Hill," like, do you, are you going to assume that I'm about to like come for you in that email? No. Like, it's you know, it's it's weird. But I digress. Um, I I mean, I think it's interesting for the first season to come out in Obama's America and the second one to come out in Trump's America. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. the ways that that plays into it. Well, the first season came out in Trump's America too. We we uh, he won the night we wrapped. Uh, season one, yeah, but we, we did. We, of course, we didn't make it in in that area, but right. we kind of did because we all we were all seeing what was happening. I don't know that we could predict that outcome, but you know, certainly the undercurrents were were very much there. Yeah. Already. Okay, so I want to talk about casting because her aunt comes out, and I was like, "Oh my god!" And then her mom <laughs> comes out, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, yeah, <laughs> I was tell, uh, Tama Hopkins and Wendy Raquel uh, Robinson. Wendy yeah. Raquel Robinson. Um, talk to me about casting this episode. It must have been interesting to get to cast her family. It was so fun. I mean, part of it, too, is that, you know, um, a lot of us in the room have lost parents. And I, I, I my mom is Creole. I wouldn't consider that interracial. But I certainly know what it's like to go home to a family that doesn't look the way black families look on TV. Um, you know, Yvette Lee Bowser, our, you know, our showrunner. Um, also, you know, had that experience where she was a product of an interracial relationship and um, losing her mom, it just brings up all kinds of strange questions. And so we really wanted to create a family that didn't sort of, they weren't just exactly what you expected. They didn't come down on the same ideological size that you would expect. Um, you know, showing a family that, you know, of different hues of people um, that felt real but didn't feel like the sort of stereotype or, or feel like that. We, we didn't want to go for any of the obvious jokes. And, uh, you know, Kim Coleman is our casting director and is just brilliant. And we are obviously fans of, of those two actors. And Wendy, you know, I mean, she just blew it away. She just blew the audition away and undeniably looks something like Sam. You know, it, it, you can see that, oh, her plus somebody else equals this girl. You could feel it. Um, and also, they're just fucking legends. So, you know, it was like... It was yes. It was like a yes, please. <laughs> it was when I when I was watching mm -hmm. Wendy Raquel at first. I was like, oh, I've always seen her in comedies, and so I was trying to like like strip myself of that because I was mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm seeing her in a very dramatic like uh, episode and a very hard conversation. So it took me a while at first to kind of like remove 
who I know her to be and other stuff uh, and to start to embrace her as Sam's mom. And then I was watching with a friend and we were like, well, I definitely see the resemblance. Like, it seems like I could I could see that happening there. Um, and then she has a moment in the kitchen with Sam where they they kind of like they have a break, if they if you will. Um, and it was it was a really beautiful scene where they they kind of talk about everything that's kind of been under the surface, if you will. Um, yeah, and we yeah. knew Sam had to have a uh, yes and yes, absolutely. And I love I love using actors who you've seen them one way and now we get to show you them doing something else. But you know, she's a really great actor and very giving and very generous in her scenes. And, um, yeah, I mean, that moment was really special to me too. Janixa Bravo directed the hell out of that episode and made it feel so real and made it feel so lived in, you know, and, and different from the rest of Winchester. Um, yeah, it was just like, a, you know, for us, it was kind of a no brainer. We knew that Sam had to have a mom who was very powerful and, you know, we, there was a certain kind of mom we knew she had to have, once we met her dad and uh Winnie just kind of hit that for us she hit that she hit those notes for us there's a cool scene in the episode where uh Sam is sitting in her dad's office uh one I love the way that it was shot like you see the seat and then you come back and you see the seat again and there he is and she's kind of she's not really conversing with him but she's like hearing from him I guess um I and like he has a lot to say to her uh and I, I, I was curious about writing that, what that, what that was like. I mean, you know, it was a surreal moment. I think, you know, listen, again, there's a lot of, we, a lot of us have lived this experience of losing a parent. And I think part of it, part of it is, is that hope and that wish that they do become something of an angel that can whisper things to you, you know, in the quiet spaces, but also the fact that you, you know, your parents, the voices of our parents live on in our heads forever whether we want them to or not absolutely no matter how much therapy you have yeah no matter how much therapy you have (laughs) you can never quite shake that voice and it just felt like an artful an honest way of portraying that moment that felt different that allowed us inside of her head because you know seeing somebody thinking is is hard to portray uh, in, in a show but that's what she would be doing she would be absorbing this moment kind of quietly and silently but there were some things that we needed to tease out uh, in the narrative and um you know it's just one of those things that Yvette and Nastra and the writers they just did it and it was beautiful and it was like you know I think our show I think our show really does look for the ordinary and the surreal and vice versa and you know I think we kind of play this magic trick of showing you things that aren't necessarily real but we're telling something very real about that. And I, and I don't know any, I don't know. I, I just, whenever I'm, I'm sifting through my father's things or looking at his photos, I mean, I'm, I'm always imagining what his voice might sound like and what he might say to me. And it just felt like an honest way to, of doing that. You know, that it wasn't too, too tricky or gimmicky. So the end of the episode obviously leads us into the finale. Um, we, she has this letter from her dad. She has this box that she's taking, I think, back to campus. Um, and she's about to have this encounter with Ricky Carter, which this encounter with Ricky Carter, though, like, oh, my God. This, I mean, like, the reads, I mean, it was just, it was, I'll, I'll start there. This encounter with Ricky Carter. 
That's, um, where, that's where the episode started for me. I, I mean, I feel like that had to have been a lot of fun to write, but it also like there's a lot of meat in that conversation as well. Um, yeah, there is. It's very funny. Talk to me about what that meant to you. Well, I just was sort of trying to get my – I wrap my head around some of these alt-right leaders who were clearly so intelligent and seemingly well-adjusted, you know, sort of dying on the cross on some really insane ideas and trying to figure out, well, how do you get there? And um, something that just is sort of plain – you know, it's showbiz. It's showbiz. Mm-hmm. These people, these people um, on CNN, are, are they get paid to show up and not back down from their arguments. And to me, that's sort of Sam's worst nightmare is sort of being stuck in an argument that she began in her, you know, early 20s. Like for the rest of her life, she's this one girl. You know, that hair has to stay in the pompadour and she has to stay militant and always date black people. You know what I mean? She's sort of like... Um, She's kind of trapped in a role that she didn't necessarily mean to create for herself. And I thought, you know, what an interesting parallel. Um, and especially once we realized it was going to be Tessa playing Ricky, commenting on Candace Owens before any of us knew who Candace Owens was or is. Mm-hmm. Um, it just came out of me, Jerry. It was like one of those things where, like, like I was stewing and, and chewing on all of these concepts and thinking about, well, what is Ian Coulter like when she goes home at night and is talking to JJ? Like, what is, what is, what is that about? And, like, yeah. you know, what is Stacey da- what, what Does Stacey Dash really mean this stuff? And, like, just really trying to grapple with it. And, um, you know, came home from the writer's room and didn't know if we were going to get Tessa and, and was just really thinking, God, you know, this could be a really, op- a really interesting opportunity to see these two women face off. And it just, I just wrote this scene and I, and I wasn't even sure where it was going to go, if it was just an exercise and getting something out. But I just, something in me needed to express itself in that scene and that was the first thing I wrote. And I, and I remember, you know, a lot of times when I write that way, the next morning it's garbage. So I, I remember <laughs> writing it, I wrote it by hand and put it away because I was like literally about to go to bed and I couldn't get these words out of my head. So I wrote it by hand. I put it by my nightstand and I woke up and it was still good. And I just kind of slowly introduced it into the writer's room and it just organically, we worked our way to that scene and Tessa was available and it, it just came together. It was one of those, it was one of those things where I can't, you know, when people say, and I roll my, like, I can't take credit for it. It came from, it really did. I mean, it came from, my subconscious trying to work some stuff out, man. I mean, that's, that's where it came from. And I mean, obviously Tessa is a great, for anyone that saw the film, Tessa is a great, uh, callback or to the, to the film. And, um, and it was kind of just cool to see Tessa and Logan as, uh, Ricky and as Sam, like having that encounter, I thought that was really interesting to watch. Um, I, I just loved everything about that scene. So, I love to hear how that that came about because it was it was really really cool. Um, yeah, and it was also our you know I think I mentioned network. It was a big touchstone for us. And um, there's a scene in Network where uh, Howard Beale goes to talk to the owner of the channel, and the owner of the channel is sitting down a row of green lights and essentially literally puts the fear of God in him and. You know, in, in in some ways, that scene is such a, is an homage to this other scene that's kind of meant so much to us uh, as the writers of the show. So, you know, it was a, a lot was going into that moment for us. 
I'm also playing the episode right now on the screen, and I did notice a cameo in the police station. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, wait, I think I know that face. <laughs> well, yeah, Rick, Rick is, um, you know, the one thing that I have let him down in our relationship is that he just wanted to be in a coffee shop scene and he wanted to play a barista. And I was like, <laughs> oh, no, and I was like, yeah, no, we're going to make it happen. We're going to make it happen. And we had a coffee shop scene in season one. And, um, season one, uh, we, we cut the coffee shop scene. And I was like, Rick, I'm so sorry. Like, you know, Rick is my, is my boo for anybody who doesn't know. And, um, and, you know, I was like, I'm so sorry. We, we, we'll, I'll find a coffee shop scene for you. This is one of those things that you kind of joke about in a relationship until it becomes serious. And then, like, and then some, at some point, the coffee shop scene went back in. And on set, we're shooting, and I'm realizing, oh, my God, I'm shooting the coffee shop scene. And I did not tell Rick. You're <laughs> so, going to catch it. Yeah, so I owed it. <laughs> I owed him one. Uh, but also, it's just fun having him there. And, uh you know, he's he's sort of like the uh, he's the unspoken hero of the series because he literally lends me to this production <laughs> and, uh, and is, a, is a real anchor for me in a situation that honestly is very trying. You know, making this show, so I had to I had to give my baby a little cameo. Well, so if you're if you're watching the episode, you'll see Rick is actually dead center in the middle of the screen. He's like leaning up against a cubicle and then kind of fades off into the background as as the, the group breaks up. So you'll see Rick there. Um, after that scene, Coco hooks up with, is it Wyatt that she hooks up with? Uh, Kurt, yeah. Kurt, um, and I, I did not see that coming. I was like, <laughs> whoa, 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 what just happened? Uh, the actor is Wyatt, Na- Wyatt Nash, Kurt is his, is his character's name. Um, and, and it also, it kind of plays with what we were talking about earlier about her being able to use her blackness as a currency and like, wanting to 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 use it um and it definitely sets us up for something that's coming uh i know i mean obviously you're not going to tell us what's going to happen next season but like it was it was just like interesting little glimpse into like oh there's something happening here yeah (laughs) well you know what that's an event lee bowser special man that was one of the things where she was like okay you're gonna think this is crazy but and i was like no i don't think it's crazy because actually you know, the show is all about, like, these people are not what they seem. I mean, we're saying that in every possible aspect of the show. And when you think about it, the two of them are very similar in terms of their sense of humor and in terms of their sort of, like, total lack of reverence for what is appropriate or, like, what is, like, you know, an appropriate time to invoke a stereotype or not. And it just made sense when, when we talked about it, but it was also shocking. And I think that that's kind of what we're always looking for in the show is, like, what makes sense when we really get to know a character when we think about it, but takes us takes us a minute to get used to, and uh, and it was just a great a great way to do that. And I thought it was a, a, a brilliant idea on Yvette's part. So Sam, Sam and Lionel begin to think they may have figured out this secret society thing, <laughs> um, and. I mean, I don't even know what to ask here. I feel like a bad journalist for not having a real question here. But, like, you get to this end of the episode, and I'm not going to lie to you. Like, at first, I was watching it with a friend, and he was like, um, we've seen Lionel, like, Lionel is finally putting it down on his boyfriend. We see Lionel, like, coming out into, like, really having this, this whole moment. And then we see Lionel and Sam, like, make this discovery 
Um, it's been an interesting, the whole episode is just like, ah, it's really good. Okay. So what do I ask here? I'm the secret society or the secret society thing. First of all, confirm for us. I mean, IMDB does it, but like the man who walks out is our narrator and has been for two seasons. Correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. You may not want to answer this. And if you don't, don't, and I, I won't be mad, but like, has this always been a part of the plan or was this something you guys came up with? Like that was, that um, kind of like I shocked always, me. Well, from the moment we, I, I'm a little self-conscious about using a narrator because it can so easily be a crutch. And so from the very beginning, I mean, you hear it in the narration where he sort of says that like he's been hired to sort of disarm you and explain things to you that the writers are lazy, too lazy, too lazy to write for themselves. So there's, there's always been a kind of acknowledgement um, on the narrator's part, uh, you know, that is, he's not just this omniscient voice that you're listening to. Um, and I, I knew, I, I knew I wanted to do something different with that, with that character. And I also knew that, you know, this season is really talking about like considering the source. We sort of like walk through America with all of these assumptions about what has happened in the past, but we really never stopped to think of where we got that from. It's like, yeah, did the chapter on slavery in, in history class, is that really all there is to know about, you know, what happened in the past? And I thought stepping the narrator into the narrative was a good way to, to sort of like kind of hit you with like, whoa, everything I've just been told by this show is coming from a point of view. It's coming from a person who may have motives and who may have other things going on that have not been disclosed to us. What else does he have to hide? What else is there to him and what else is there to this narrative? And I just thought bringing him into it did all of those things. Now, where we go with it from here, we certainly have a, an idea um, that I will not talk about on this phone call. But Fine, Justin. I know. But in terms of, <laughs> but in terms of the thematic nature of, of the shock of bringing a narrative to the narrative, I mean, I'm certainly not the first person to do it. Uh, but I, I, I think it might be the first time in a long time it's been done on TV. And I just thought it'd be really a good way that thematically kind of summed up what the season was about, no. which is think, think about who's telling you the things that you think you know. Yeah, I, I was watching it. I rewatched that last like moment like more times than I'll admit. And like I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then I thought... It, it almost like it had like a mystical kind of feeling to it. I was like, is he going to like shoot lightning out of his fingertips or something? Like what is about to happen? Yeah, somebody, somebody asked me if he was a ghost or if he's a hallucination or, you know, did the episode actually end and, and this is a dream. You know I mean? I've definitely gotten a lot of that. Thank you so much. Sir. I appreciate it. I've definitely gotten a lot of that. Uh, and I, I think all of that is really fun. I mean, it's the moment in into the woods. I don't know if you've seen the play, but um, there's a moment in the play of Into the Woods where the narrator, who is narrating this entire musical, he gets killed by the giant. And then the, the character's like, well, what the hell do we do now? We might have a narrator. And it's like, I don't know, the, the stuff that plays with the form like that and, and sort of is honest with you about what you're watching, it just appeals to me. I love it. I love it. So you definitely left us hanging there. Um, I don't want to go through the last episode without addressing Noel, excuse me, Joel and Reggie. Um, and yes. like, I mean, they finally have this moment that we've been waiting two years to happen. Um, and I mean, and they go in like it wasn't just, 
it wasn't just a kiss like I was thinking it was going to be. Um, it was, it, I mean, it was kind of the payoff. Like, Joelle has been wanting Reggie for a long time. Um, talk to me about getting to kind of have that payoff for both of those characters. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, listen, sometimes sometimes the fun of doing a TV show is denying the audience what they want, and sometimes the fun of it is just giving you what you want. And, you know, I think especially in a show where we're dealing with so many interracial relationships, um, it was important to just have just a solid black-on-black love situation go down that wasn't complicated was it was just like these two people are into each other i mean that was important to us that was important to me just to you know make sure people knew that like i acknowledge that <laughs> that's a thing that also happens you know i think sometimes as writers it, it's it's so tempting to go to the difficult parts to, to go to the hard parts well let's put someone together with someone else who you know there's all this stuff in between them but with these two it was just we've been teasing it out for so long there was just nothing else. There was no other way to go. And, um, you know, I think, uh, I think that, I think that their relationship is going to be an interesting thing to watch. Um, you know, because obviously this is the beginning of, of a new kind of chapter for the two of them. And it it also will inevitably complicate things with Sam because, you know, Sam, Sam was kind of, you do feel some type of way when somebody's into you and then suddenly they're not. And, you know, I I think that Joelle and Sam have a a few things that have not been talked about yet that I don't know how they're going to go forward without talking about them. So it just felt like a great way to both give, give people what they want, uh, have a a semi happy ending for someone in the damn show, but also (laughs) not take anything off of the table in terms of dramatic stakes. I, you, you mentioned Sam, Sam has, what makes that scene incredibly hilarious at the end where she walks in and they're both sitting in the chairs naked, like, Hey girl, what's good. And it was just a, it was a beautiful way to like end that like intense moment that we've all been waiting for and like kind of bring us back out of it and say like, Oh, there's, there's something else to do in this episode. So, uh, yeah, well, and also it's college and you know, we, we had to, we of course had to pay back the scene. Um, in the beginning of the season, uh, where Joel walks in on Sam, uh, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. Um, are you you know, th- Sam, I think I think one of the things that Sam is dealing with is her own selfishness, and uh, you know, I think she is overcoming a lot of that. This, and so literally for her, her, kind of one of her final beats is to be like, "Bitch, this is what it was like." You know, I think was very justified. Was was you Sam taken in stride too, which I think is you know shows that that character is growing. Yeah, um, Sam and Gabe have their last moment together in bed, and what was an intense situation. Uh, Gabe was giving it to her, and then uh, <laughs> yes, he was. <laughs> and so, like, it establishes for us, like, oh, okay, we're back. Like, this is this wasn't just the end of episode eight with this conversation. Like, I think we're we're back doing this. So. Uh, final thoughts there before we're done? Well, I didn't want to, you know, they don't define their relationship, which I think, again, allows us to sort of have a conclusion to that particular journey, but not take anything dramatic off the table. Um, I think that they will continue to be complicated, as most people in their early 20s are with each other. Um, But, you know, it also acknowledges that for at least a moment that the two of them have a real connection between them, Um, even though the world around them sort of says that they can't be together for a number of reasons. 
And, uh, you know, I also thought that Sam needed someone. I think the reason why Gabe is really hard for her to quit is because he really is one of the few people in her life that genuinely listens to her. I mean, Joelle listens to her, but Joelle is sort of always in advice mode. But Gabe just listens, and I think she has a lot to unpack in this episode, and without that scene, we, we wouldn't be able to watch her unpack it. And, uh, you know, what would be the fun of that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, so season two was a roller coaster. It was hilarious. It was like... At the end, it's a little bit ominous. It's like it's it's all of the things. Um, like incredibly proud and excited for you of you. Like I mean, just I, I, I hate to like gush because like I loved it so much, but like I loved it so much. Like an, an outstanding job, Dustin. Thank you so much, Jared. I, that means a lot. I really really respect your opinion, and um, you know it means a lot. We put our foot in it. So yes, it's, you it's, did. It's good to hear that. Um, before we let you go, I know that you're working on a film. Uh, tell us what you want to tell us about what you have coming up next, because Dear White People is not the only thing that you have going on. No, no, sir. No, yeah, I'm making a horror satire called Bad Hair uh, about a woman who uh, gets a weave and in doing so gets a bit more than she bargained for. And it's a, you know, it's sort of a, uh, it is a satire it is a horror movie. Uh, there, it does involve a, a literal killer weave. Um, but <laughs> in my own sort of shady filmic way, it is a kind of, you know, a rebuke of the bullshit, frankly, that black women have to go through in order just to be seen, period. Not even to excel, but just to be seen. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a way of kind of satirizing the, the cult of culture and how decisions of beauty, standards of beauty made without any of our input in so many ways can limit us and define us and control us. Um, and so, you know, it's all of that, but with like really fantastic thrills and, and some comedic moments. And uh, I'm just excited to make something really different from Dear White People uh, and, and, to, and to talk about other things too, you know, to talk about uh, uh, to talk about other things and to talk about them in new ways. So I'm, I'm like, I'm really excited to be making this movie. You're going to be shooting it this summer. When can we expect to see it and where will we see it? Well, I don't know. You know, we're making it independently um, because creatively that's just the way I wanted to do it. And uh, and we'll see, you know, we'll probably find a place to debut it uh, at some point next year. But right now i got to make the thing. Well, there's that. Okay. <laughs> well, we will look out for that uh, in the future. Thank you so much. Um, we really appreciate it. Thank you for the time, Jared. Thank you for the thorough examinations. I loved it. <laughs> All right. So there you have it. My chat with the one and only Justin Simeon. Dear White People is currently streaming all of its episodes on Netflix right now. Uh, You can check it out. And uh, I'm hoping you haven't gotten this far in this episode and not seen Dear White People yet. Because, I mean, we basically gave it all away. But uh, make sure you go and uh, follow on Instagram. You can follow me at Jarrett Hill on Twitter as well, um, on the Facebook machine, all that different stuff. Um, Our thanks to Justin for being here and uh, to Essence for, um, you know, letting me write and do stuff. So until next time.